Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and today on the show we'll be discussing the big issues with career advancement and negotiation, what are some of the key things people, and women in particular, can do to level the playing field, and what others can do to help. I'm joined by an expert in all that is professional development, leadership communications coach, speaker, and founder of the Ask Like an Auctioneer platform, Dia Bondi. Dia, thanks for coming on the show. I am so thrilled to be here with you and your listeners. So I'm going to start at the beginning here. Obviously, you have decades of, of experience in this field, so I think a, people are often very curious as to how someone gets to become a, a leadership communications coach so and how their interests lead them there. So my first question is, what was your early career path, um, and did you practice any of the advice that you give now, or do you offer the advice now because of your early career path? Yeah, I mean, it's all related. They're, they're, I bring my experience and myself with me everywhere I go. And my, you know, my early days in my career, um, interestingly, started in a fitness studio. Like my very early days in, in college, I, instead of working on campus bookstore, I got a fitness certification and taught group fitness. And what that really meant was I got to stay in front of the, stand in front of the room with a mic in my hand, which was a blast. But also, more importantly, I got to help people really step into themselves. Um, I worked at all kinds of different gyms and, and actually early days of women-only gyms, which is where really... I got tr- I got really interested in helping women step forward in themselves and in their careers. So I started out in that context and then very quickly, as soon as I was finished with college, realized that sort of the traditional route was not the route for me, you know, sort of starting out at the bottom and working my way up. I wanted to jump the line and I wanted to do sort of the similar things that I did in the context of fitness, but in the context of business. And I learned about this thing called, um, at that time, was really about industrial psychology, which then turned into organizational development and then into the world of professional development or in those days we called, you know, training and development. And I, um, I ended up finding a mentor in that space who taught me everything he knew. And it was really around, it was around the world of public speaking. And you want to talk about bringing yourself forward, (laughs) public speaking and communications is a place where we are exercising all the time how to courageously bring ourselves forward so other people can see, feel, and trust us as leaders and um, and the strategies that we put in place. So it's it's they're very, you know, fitness and the stages of uh, corporate America and around the world are very, they seem very different, but they're actually activating a really similar thing inside of us. So... I want to ask now, what are some of the most common objectives that professionals have when they want to meet with you? Well, in the earlier days in my career, it was really around like, how do I tell a compelling story in my organization um, so that other people, other stakeholders, not necessarily my direct team, but other stakeholders I have to collaborate with will follow us, will come with us, will come with me and my team. So it's about those really crucial communications moments that happen week over week, month over month, that accumulate into you sort of having a robust and, and important voice in your organization. Later in my career, I've really focused on working with folks that are sort of VP level and above that have really crucial communications moments where they can um, they can really they can really use those crucial communications moments as a level up for the organization and as a level up for themselves so that they can communicate very clearly like not just what we're doing as an organization but who am I and and why me as your as your leader 
And so I'm curious then when they approach you, is it sometimes the case where starting out they don't even know what objectives they have and they need to sort of interact with you to figure that out? Yeah, I mean, it, st it often starts with, I've got this really important thing coming up and it really needs to be good. And then in our conversation, we uncover like, what do you mean by it needs to be good? What is the outcome you're actually looking for? How do we use this opportunity to both tell a clear story about what's going on in your business right now, but also use it as a way to establish your platform as a leader so that folks in your organizations and beyond and even in your industry know what you're all about and what matters to you and what kind of, what kind of leader you are and what you really bring to the table. Do you ever run into, uh, what are some of the most stubborn uh, situations when, when trying to bring these attributes out of people? Do they ever uh, sort of f fight you on, on the process? You know, it doesn't happen that often. And one of the most important questions I ask, even when a trusted partner to some of the leaders I work with come and tap me to work with their with with their person, um, whether it's an executive assistant or as the chief of staff or a strategist that knows that one of their key leaders needs to do well on, on stage. And when I say stage, it can be a very intimate context or it can be something where there's thousands of people in the room. Um, it's just either way, it's high stakes. You know, often the question that I ask is, does this person I'm about to work with want this work? And, and if the answer is no, then we have to talk about what to do about that. And, or if the answer is they don't really know, then we have to talk about that. And if the answer is yes, then we can get to it really quickly. It's rare that I, that I have to, that I have to, that I run into stubbornness for a couple of reasons. One is that person being good on stage benefits them and the strategies they're trying to bring into the world. And so there's not a lot of resistance in terms of like trying to get the thing, be, they want to be good. Right? They want to have the impact they want to have. And my job in, in a, a lot of that conversation with them is to reveal like, what is it that they want? And then how do we help make sure that they get it through the coaching? I have had a few moments where, um, you know, it's really like I can count them on one hand where the stubbornness of somebody I'm working with, if that's what you're asking, got in the way of the coaching enough that I had to actually name it and say, we're not getting anywhere, so we're just going to stop. And where that usually comes from is two things, sort of an unwillingness to take not just feedback, but actually sense the feedback, like sense where they are and what they're bringing to the stage, actually sense themselves. And two is an unwillingness to take real risk and try stuff that might feel weird and like a stretch. So you've already mentioned, and we've talked about it, that you focus a lot of your attention now on women at work. Um, so I think I want to get into three of the big issues in that arena. Uh, one is career growth opportunities. Uh, the other is the field of salary and salary negotiation, and then advancement to leadership positions. So I'd like to go through all three of those, and starting with the career growth opportunities. So I'm going to sort of paint a scenario here that I think is quite common. Uh, you know, somebody has a boss who's extremely busy and the employee wants to feel like they're not only a resource for the boss, but they also want to figure out how to get that boss's attention uh, and show that they're a leader so that they can then get to that level as well. So what sort of advice do you have for uh, career growth challenges specific to women in the, in the workplace right well, now? Well... Look, I'm just going to draw on the thousands of conversations I have with women and sort of what I see and hear people suffering and what they really want. And, you know, especially early on in someone's career, I think it's really important to, A, not over fixate 
on the attention of one person that you need in the organization, but instead to like build a cohort of people who are your champions in your organization and even outside. People who are champions and also mentors to you because it may not be your direct manager that is the one that levels you up. You, you know, you need, we need to always be cultivating a group of champions around us in our career that are going to see both um, moves that are going to see and pull us up, both moves that bring us, you know, up in the hierarchy of the organizations we work with and grow us into the titles that are part of our goals, but also that will sometimes even move us laterally to help sort of broaden our skills. So that's number one, to not fixate only on one person. The other thing is to make sure that you at every opportunity, particularly when you're thinking about like performance reviews, I don't know what, you know, every organization has a different rhythm to their performance reviews, to their feedback cycles. Where are you taking opportunities to make your goals known to both your direct manager and to the the people who you're cultivating as sort of your pool of champions and your pool of mentors? Too often, I hear us women pull punches and not be really either honest with ourselves or really honest with the people that can help us about what our real goals are. And I can give you examples if you'd like them. Sure. If you have, I'd love to hear some if you have, yeah. if you have one ready. Yeah. So last month, um, I have a workshop that I deliver called Your Most Powerful Ask that helps women um, use asking as a success strategy in their careers. And um, one woman in my workshop, there's a point where we do some live some live coaching and she's she's on a legal team in-house at a large technology company in in san francisco and when i go to ask people what are your goals let me hear some of what these goals are what 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 your goals are she raised her hand and said okay here's my goal i said great what is it she said i just want to keep learning and growing and 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 straight up i had to say i'm sorry that's not a goal that's an activity okay so let's let's be like what do you actually want because when i hear those kind of softball like i just want to keep developing myself i i know that there's there's a reason they want to keep developing themselves and that's what i want to get to when we we actually pushed hard enough for her to be honest with me and with the room she said all right, fine, I wanna be general counsel to a mid-sized tech firm just like this one someday. And I went, now we're on to something. Now we're, now we're telling the truth to ourselves and we also have the opportunity now to enroll others in helping us achieve that goal. But when we're mushy about our goals, people don't know how to help you. So you talk about that ask. I think a big ask is, is the salary step now and the salary negotiation and also just asking for a raise outside of that maybe yearly career development meeting. So for women, this is obviously a bigger challenge than, than I think it is for men. Uh, what are some, some positive steps that you think women can, can take to, to advocate for themselves? Sure. So I think it's similar to the answer I just gave you before, which is getting really clear about what you want and uncoupling what you want from what you think is possible. <laughs> like it's okay for us to really um, – get clear about what do I want. I, I, I'll just draw on another example from one of my workshops. Um, recently, I had a woman um, come up for the live coaching portion and she was looking to, she was right at, on her like third round of, um, of interviews. She was early in her career, um, uh, also actually in the space of legal, interesting, legal and tech. And she she was looking to leave her organization, was in negotiation with another organization, was about to get an offer, and she was defining her salary. And when I brought her to the front of the room and said, okay, you don't have to tell us what your salary is now, but tell us what you're going to be asking for. And she offered a number, and the whole room sort of blew up, you know. The whole room thought, wait a second, 
there's got to be more room for you to ask for something that is not just what you think you can get, but instead something that sends a signal to what kind of game you want to be playing um, and really maximizing the potential of that negotiation. And th when we asked the room, what do you think her, her number can actually be? It was like another $30,000 above what wow. she thought was quote unquote reasonable. So I think we have to always uncouple, we have to always uncouple what do we think we're going to get a yes to or what do we think is reasonable or friendly or has the right optics or is, you know, fair. <laughs> And instead, ask ourselves, what do we what do we think is possible for us? And then what do we think we're going to get and maybe threatens a no that I then can actually negotiate down to a number that is higher than what we thought that than what I what I would aim for originally that would just automatically get a yes. And there's over and over. I just to add one more thing. I'm sorry. Over and over again. It's just to know that you can negotiate. I mean, that's basically what I was going to say. There's, I think there's a fear. Let's say you, you want $10,000 more to your salary or something. There's a fear that if you ask for too high a number, your boss is just going to fire you and say, no, thanks. Like, that guy will, you know, never come back as opposed to, no, but here's what we can do instead. So that, that, that's a great point to bring up. Yeah, you're absolutely right there that, that I see over and over again that there's a fear that if I ask for too much, it'll just kill the conversation altogether. Right. And, and nine times out of 10, it does not. And if it does, that's a sign that maybe you're ready to look elsewhere. So that, that third question and that third prong is the, the jump to a head leadership role. This, is, this topic has come up a lot more in conversation in recent years, I think, but, but can you sort of still touch on the challenges that women face making that leap and, and what suggestions you give to them in that specific adjustment? Well, Again, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean back on asking for what you want and making your goals known by the people that can help you get somewhere. You know, over and over again, we see that like if people know where you're going, they can help you get there. But if they don't know where you're going, they have a hard time knowing how to engage you in a way that's meaningful to your goals. So that's that's the first one. There is a gap, this sort of frozen middle where folks get to this sort of manager level, right? They they're in an associate or coordinator level. They get into sort of a people manager level and then there's this other big jump to get from manager to director level there and and that is where the clarity the clarity of your goals can really serve you and also recognizing that if you don't get met if you're making the asks and you're making your pathway clear and you don't get met being willing to leave to go make that jump sometimes that is a requirement you know in my in my communications work one of the challenges that the leaders that i work with face is if they go from a director level to a vp level inside the same organization or a vp level to a c level inside the organization to reestablish their voice inside that organization at that new role because what that role requires is different so if you're struggling um, getting from manager level to director level to get over that sort of that hump right there, uh, recognizing that that reestablishing your voice as director, you know, and director potential is going to be something to look at. So you might want to be looking also at feedback around how am I showing up in the room? What is it? What kind of communication can I uh, grow into? Where can I become more skillful so that I'm actually I'm actually communicating at the expectation of a director level so that when the ask when the ask comes you've already sort of started to establish establish yourself in that leadership role in the room 
even if it's not your title. That's great. So, so I, I'm curious now, in working with individuals, do you spend time on the business side as well? Do you take the info that you hear from the people that you work with to CEOs, to big companies, so they can understand where there are maybe discrepancies in what the individual says versus what the company hears or, or thinks is happening? Like in a, do you mean in like a 360 kind of context? Sure. Um, less so. Um, more, I work one-on-one -on -one with an individual around a particular stage moment that they, in my one-on-one -on -one coaching, in my communications coaching, around a particular stage moment. Again, when I say stage, it can be high stakes, small audience, or big audience. And most of the time, you know, I'm using materials from the organization already. So I need to understand, like, whether if it's a product announcement or, you know, I've worked on a couple of Olympic bids, I, you know, I'm not working completely in isolation of all that other storytelling. What I'm trying to do is, is take that all of that content and catalyze it with that individual leader in a way that also does not drown out that leader's voice so that they're sort of dancing together. Do you have a, do you have a, an example of that or yeah. an anecdote of how that works? Yeah. Or? So um, I worked on, so my Olympic bids are sort of, you know, that experience, which is very unique, <laughs> um, is a great example of that because, you know, there are 16, I think it's 16 different themes that the bid committee needs to um, talk about with the International Olympic Committee during that bid process. And all of that strategy is is written by a just a, a lot of people, a lot of folks who are specialists in those 16 different themes. And then it's the bid leaders, um, it's the bid leaders job to sort of alchemize all of that and represent it. Same thing maybe with a particular leader in technology, maybe that is launching a new product. I both need to understand how is all of the, the organizational story getting rolled up into your voice that helps me know why, as we go into launch and make this product live in the world, why you are the one to help us do it so that I can both trust you enough individually as well as lean on the story that's been established by the organization for us to all move together. I want to pivot now slightly to ask like an auctioneer. Uh, can you talk about the scope of this idea and, and how uh, approaching negotiation like an auctioneer can, can work effectively? So um, very interestingly, I took a working sabbatical maybe three or four years ago. And I do that about every seven years. In my coaching practice, I'm fairly cross-disciplinary. You know, I, I sometimes take a, a applied improv class to see what I can draw from it and apply in my coaching practice. I'm always, you know, developing myself using, um, using work and approaches that aren't right on the nose of the coaching world. Um, and during my working sabbatical, I thought, what am I going to do with this? I want to learn something. And my husband reminded me of that thing that I had on my bucket list that I had said out loud 10 years before, which was to go to auctioneering school. How fun to stand in front of a room and and be an auctioneer, play that role, see what that's like, you know? Um, and it was just so, felt so obscure but interesting to me. And so I thought, well, during this working sabbatical, maybe this is the time to do it. So I did that. I went to St. Louis and spent uh, 10 days in a hotel on Route 66, me and 100 cowboys learning how to auctioneer. And when I got home, I thought, what am I going to do with this? And what I do now is um, sort of as a hobby, an impact hobby, as I do fundraising auctioneering for women-led nonprofits and nonprofits that benefit women and girls here in the Bay Area. 
Well, simultaneous to that, learning and getting better on stages in that way, I was sort of looking across all of my 20 years as a communications coach and all the work that I do as a CEO activator and the different women's groups that I do as I help to elevate women um, across uh, in the workplace, um, wherever I can, women that I, women entrepreneurs I've worked with. You know, I noticed a pattern that when I work on communications with these folks, it's usually around a pitch or a crucial stage moment, of, as I've said, and that's all aimed at a particular ask. You know, in business, we call it a call to action, but it is really a crucial ask. What do you want from your audience? What are you looking to actually get from this conversation? And over and over again, the answer that I get is, "I, uh, what do you think I can get? Which ultimately means we're aiming our asks at what we think is possible without ever actually finding out what's possible. Well, in auctioneering, we don't aim for what do we think we can get. We aim, we ask big enough until we get a no. And we can't actually sell anything in the room until we get somebody says, nope, I won't pay more than that. So falling asleep one night, I thought, God, wouldn't it be great if all the women that I work with had the opportunity to sort of ask like an auctioneer? See what it feels like to, to aim for no and not just what we think is possible and polite. And uh, so, I, so I held that idea for a couple of months and then spoke it into a room of 60 women, shared my core ideas and to see if it was even, if it was even worth pursuing. And just about every woman in that room said, oh my gosh, can you please make this a thing? And so in 2019, I launched this thing called Ask Like an Auctioneer, which is really aimed at helping a million women ask for more and get it. And not just in um, moments that are specifically designed for negotiation, but how do you think about using asking as a success strategy across our careers? So what other examples then do you have? I'm curious now, you've worked with obviously entry level, you've worked with top executives. Uh, in terms of negotiation, in terms of le leadership, what are some of the really common traits that you see when working with 24 years old, you know, two years out of school, trying to grow in that first job, 40-year professional who's trying to, you know, to, to gain new skills or, or to get more comfortable in certain situations? Well, it's very interesting. I... Um... One of my colleagues says, you know, Dia, you see all problems exactly the same size. And, and it's very true. When I'm trying to figure out how to print with my home printer or I'm standing on stage in front of a thousand people, <laughs> they all feel like the same kind of stakes for me. Um, and that's very true actually working, whether I'm teaching my, um, my workshop, Your Most Powerful Ask, with a bunch of sort of early high potential, early career women, or if I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a bid leader for a, you know an Olympic campaign, you know, People, this is going to sound very cliche, but people are people. And we all struggle all the time with risk, with vulnerability, with ambiguity, with wanting to be seen and heard, with uh, sensing our own worth in the room. These are things that are universal, up and down the career trajectory. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's the thing that is the thing I want to go for every time I work with somebody, whether it's helping them prepare for a crucial communications moment or in my workshops, uh, looking to help a, a woman who is, um, you know, 26 years old and ready to make her goals known and really go for them. So both of those acts are acts of vulnerability, and both of them have very similar characteristics. 
so we, we've spoken a lot about coaching. We've spoken a little bit about mentoring. You touched on that at, at the beginning of the episode. So first of all, how do you personally define the difference between mentoring and coaching? And for those who perhaps don't have the resources you know, for a communications coach, is a, is a mentor the next best thing for them? Yeah. So to me, I think about mentoring is about offering advice, okay, insights, and lending your mentee credibility and your network, access to your network. Coaching isn't about offering answers and advice. It's about helping somebody in front of you get what they want through powerful questions and coaching skills that let them actually get it themselves. One is about giving. The other one is about elevating from behind. Not necessarily giving. You know, great mentors don't just hand things over, but they're going to give you feedback. They're going to give you credibility. They're going to lend you, again, the skills and, uh, or the, the, um, their, their own networks. And they're going to lend you often their endorsement to help you level up and get the credibility you need to be in the conversations you need to be in. So that's how I distinguish those two. And can you remind me of the second part of your question? If, if there's not, if someone doesn't have resources for a communications coach, a mentor relationship is, is usually a lot more accessible, especially financial. Um, so is a mentor the next best thing for somebody to turn to beyond a, beyond a coach? hundred percent. But there is such a thing called peer coaching. And there's a feedback framework I really like that anybody listening to this podcast at any stage in their career can use with their mentors, with their managers, with their peers, with um, people that they engage with and follow them you know, that they work with every day. And that is asking for feedback about what you're doing well and what people would want to see more of from you. When it comes to communications, when it comes to project management, when it comes to your strategic thinking, just about anything. The, 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 the two most powerful questions that will by default end up being some coaching that people might be giving you even without them knowing it is, what am I doing well? What's working about what I'm doing? Maybe every time I, uh, maybe I work in a, in a brand agency and maybe I lead a, a pitch for a particular strategy. I'm, I'm running the pitches all the time. Find out from your team, what am I doing well when, it's, when I go to pitch? And what would you like to see more of? And this is really powerful because when we know what we need, what we can do more of, then we can bring forward the things that are really um, powerful about ourselves versus when we are, when we ask, what should I stop doing? Because it's really hard to shrink ourselves. It's much easier, I see over and over again, for us to know what to do and do it versus what not to do and hide it. So I think you can get both mentorship and coaching from the people around you all the time. And those two feedback questions tend to be very powerful and what I use in my coaching now. You mentioned one of the aspects of a mentor is that they can help you. They can either provide resources or provide people to help you get a job. I think a lot of people working with a mentor have that that fear of asking them for too much on it's like a silver platter, let's say. So can you help fill in some of those steps between establishing the relationship with a mentor to here's the contact information for that dream job that you want to go apply for and you can mention my name or this, you know, this is how you can get help with that job. What are some of those stepping stones in between the beginning of that relationship to 
<laughs> go forth. Sure. So I'm going to actually draw on the my ask like an auctioneer work from that, which is to say, sure. look, by the time I stand in front of a room and I ask an audience of 300 people for a direct pledge for the nonprofit I'm speaking for or making an ask on behalf of, that audience has been very curated. It's been very nurtured. There have been lots of touch points, you know, over the course of the year that have kept them engaged. There's been lots of thank yous, lots of gratitude. There's been, you know, it is a it is a, a, a reciprocal relationship. So when we think about bringing mentors into our lives, yes, we're going to be making asks, but we need to make sure that every time we make those asks, that we're cultivating that relationship throughout the year between those big asks so that those mentors feel engaged and they feel um, part of your progress. So that when you go to make an ask, it has a context and comes from a place of existing rapport. So what that means is maybe there have been other opportunities for you to make small asks of that person every time you action that ask or you get a response and then you go use that the answer that you get to move yourself forward you need to follow up and make sure that the mentor who gave you that gave you that help knows how it pans out so that they can also see the progress and the impact of their mentoring you it feels great for us as mentors you know I'm in the middle of I'm in the middle of my life so I have mentees coming to me all the time asking for help. And there is nothing more powerful than offering that help and then hearing a follow-up about what happened. That is highly motivating for me over and over again. So you want to cultivate those relationships as much as possible between asks. The other thing is I think it's really important that when you work with a mentor that you under that there is not just will you see me? It's also I see you. I, you know, if, if you're looking for a mentor, a woman leader in your industry who you who you want to do mentorship with, um, to understand that, yes, you want them to see you, but also that you see the work that they're doing. You see the values that they practice. You see the way that they move in the world, and it's something that you both admire, and that working with you as a mentee, mentoring me, like if somebody's going to mentor me, that it is a way for them to continue to action those values that I see that they live in the world. And when people get to action their values with you as a mentee in a successful way, that also continues to cultivate and feed that relationship. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm going to I'm going to take it one step back sure. as well. And that's more just the networking and and you answered the question brilliantly, but how about the step before having that mentor to turn to. I'm talking more the cold call, networking, the entering a room with a bunch of business cards. It's so important. People are terrified of it uh, and they don't think, nobody thinks they do it very well, frankly. So what tips do you have for even earlier in that process? Uh, and have how many times have people uh, cold called you or, or cold with the, the LinkedIn in mail? How many, how many of those have you gotten? Does that work? Is it possible? Or do you have to establish some other type of relationship? in another way first. So I think it is all about rapport and it is all about um, asking um, questions. Not asking for things, but asking questions. So one of the things that right. can be really difficult is getting approached as a as a mentor, wanting mentorship without, A, without that rapport, without really actually knowing that the person that is asking for mentorship knows who you are or what you're all about. They see your title, they see what you've worked on, they see you in you know working a room a certain way and somehow all of a sudden you're the one for them. Well, I, the mentees that approach me, I need to know that they know what I do, <laughs> that they understand how I work in the world and that there is a reason for us to be mentoring and menteeing together. 
okay, that there's a reason. And the only way that your audiences, maybe at their first networking events, are going to know that is by asking questions, finding out if somebody is right for you. That's the other thing I think is like not assuming that everybody who's a level above you is going to be a perfect mentor for you. You know, you you should select your mentors in a way that makes you feel like it's a lot, like that feels aligned to who you are and that it's actually the right person. Somebody you actually understand, respect, and see. And that is, I think the place to start with that is when you show up at that networking event, to not tell as much as you ask. Asking questions. Hi, what do you do? What kind of work do you do? What's important to you right now? Um, you know, what, what have been some of your big wins in the last year? Help me understand what's, what, what you're noticing in the world of work culture right now. Find out more before you start the telling part. As a, a closing question here, I'll ask what have, who have been some people uh, who have been mentors, mentors to you through, throughout your career? Huh. Well, um, look, there are lots of mentors that I have and lots of mentors that probably your listeners have that don't even know that they're your mentors. They're people that you follow on the web. They're people that you see and follow in conferences. They're leaders inside your organization. Not all of your mentors are people you need to have direct relationships with. You get to kind of claim that to say, that person's a mentor even though I've never talked directly to them because you get so much from your from your distanced relationship with them, from watching them. You learn so much even from afar. So I just want to say that our mentors can include people we don't know personally or that wouldn't pick up the phone if we called because they you know they don't recognize the number um so so i will say a few things about that one is my earliest mentor was somebody i spent a lot of time um learning about following i even i watched him work and um he was he was the person that taught me everything I know about my communications coaching work now, um, you know, or the, or the early foundation of that. He was somebody that, you know, when I look back, it, it, he was somebody that our relationship was very much, I see you, you see me. He saw me early on and I, I noticed that. And I realized that this person sees me in a way that nobody else does. And I'm going to have the courage to ask him if he'll teach me everything he knows. And so it was for me, you know, that he was one of the most powerful mentors in my life for two reasons, because he saw me and also because I saw him. So our, our relationship was very close and very tied to our professional work as well. So he was one of my early mentors. I will also say that one of my mentors, even though she may not know it and she's gone now, was my grandmother. Um, and it is because that woman was the CEO of her own life. Even inside the limitations that she lived, she was never a professional woman, but she ran it like she owned it. And that was and unapologetically. And that was something I really respect and admired. Um, and, it, and it was sometimes even a little bit scary. Um, some of the other mentors that I have in my life are people who are my peers as well. We peer mentor one another. So we can also fold those people into our sort of batch or cohort of people that we consider mentors. They don't always have to be older. They don't always have to be further down a particular path than you. They can be people that see you and you see them at every stage. Dia, thank you very much for, for coming on the show to, to share your expertise. Where can our listeners find more of your work? You can find me at diabondi.com and you can check out my Ask Like an Auctioneer project at asklikeanauctioneer.com. Although those two things are linked, so you can find me in either place. All right. Thanks again. 
And a thank you to our listeners. Please subscribe to our podcast, rate it, comment on it. And if you have finance questions related to entrepreneurship, small businesses, or startups that you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails and we'll try to answer a few on the next episode. Finally, for more information on finance, investing, and business, check out money.usnews.com. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.